This week we're going to be continuing through 1 Samuel. And as we begin, we're reminded that life is full of all, all sorts of ups and downs. It contains many wins and losses, mountaintop highs, and the deepest valleys of depression. And yet through all this, a path to victory can be found. If I could put a title on this teaching, it would be the path to victory. In fact, I have put a title on it. <laughs> it is the path to victory. As we continue our journey this week through the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to see that it is Adonai who sets forth this path for Israel. It's subsequently for each of us as well. By way of reminder, 1 Samuel is set in the aftermath of the book of Judges, a time when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes and according to their own understanding. And it chronicles the journey of the children of Israel through the difficult and awkward stages of a people who are in the midst of change. A people moving from a theocracy into a monarchy. Last time we were together, we learned that the Philistines had returned the Ark of Adonai to Israel. And the people of Beshemesh received it back with great joy and excitement. Unfortunately, in their zeal, they mishandled it and were punished for their irreverence toward God's holiness. But in response to this reprimand, the people began to draw near to him in the correct way, with reverence and repentance. They threw away their idols, and as a result, God heard the cry of their hearts. And he raises up Samuel to step fully into his role as the final judge of Israel. So Samuel called the people to assemble together. Chapter 7, verse 4, is where we'll pick up today. Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines marched against them. And when the Israelites heard it, they were afraid and said to Samuel, Don't stop crying out to Adonai our God for us, so he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to Adonai, then Samuel cried out to Adonai for Israel, and Adonai answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against them. But Adonai thundered with loud thunder on that day against them and confused them so that they were defeated before Israel. This loud thunder clap is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Samuel's mother, Hannah. We remember that Hannah... She was the barren woman who cried out to God to give her a son, and in return, she would dedicate her son solely to him. Adonai answered her prayer and gives her Samuel, and as she dedicates him back to God, she prophesies over him and the people of Israel. And part of her prayer we read is in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, and it says, Those who oppose Adonai will be shattered. He thunders against them in heaven fulfillment of prophecy. I love it. This shows us, and it shows the people of Israel that Samuel is a true prophet amongst them. He is to be heeded. Verse 11, then the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down all the way to below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and named it Ebenezer, saying, thus far Adonai has helped us. So God had declared that the children of Israel were supposed to be the head and not the tail, the blessed and not the oppressed, the victors and not the victims. 
Webster's Dictionary defines victory as the act of defeating an enemy or an opponent in a battle, a game, or other type of competition. Israel had been oppressed by the Philistines for longer than they would have cared to admit to. And now they're ready for victory, and God gives them one. However, it didn't just happen. The people gave of themselves. You see, victory isn't something that ever comes free and without some sort of pain or sacrifice. Thomas Jefferson once said, Good fortune is what happens when opportunity meets with planning. And we see Abraham Lincoln echoes this very same sentiment when he says, Give me six hours to chop down a tree, and I'll spend the first four sharpening the axe. Takes planning, takes time. But I think that Warren Buffett may, may have embodied the idea that victory is not free the simplest way when he said this. Someone sitting in the shade today because somebody planted a tree a long time ago. The point is this, that things don't just happen. The events in our lives, both the good and the bad, are the direct results of efforts that we, as well as others, exert upon our lives. This means that the things that are happening to us today are the byproduct of somebody else's efforts. Not everything bad that happens to us is our fault. Amen? <laughs> That's why we need to make a conscious effort to the best of our ability that we can to plan for victory in our lives. So what does a plan for victory look like? What's great is that the Bible has given us a perfect outline. And we saw a perfect example of this in last week's text when I spoke about repentance. You see, the path for victory consists of four basic steps. And the first two we saw exercised by the Israelites last week. The first one was a change of heart or repentance. We saw the children of Israel change their heart and they repented. The second path to victory is seeking God's face. They're at mitzvah. That's what they're doing. They're seeking him. They're turning to him. And the easiest way that we do this is by spending time with God and his word. How do we know the plans and the desires of God? He wrote them down for us. We got to read. We got to spend time with him. The third part of a path toward victory is praying in the spirit. Now, growing up in the situation that I grew up with in the church that I attended to, they made praying in the spirit such a big religious, all crazy thing. And really praying in the spirit is simply praying in harmony with the will of God. It doesn't have to be some weird thing where we speak in languages that we don't understand. It's simply praying in agreement what he has already agreed upon and declared upon us on our life. See, and this is the natural byproduct of us actually spending time reading his word. How do I know what God wants for me? I read his word. He tells us what he has set up for us in our lives. And the fourth thing is keeping the faith. This is maintaining the course outlined in his plan that we see put forth in his word. Staying excited for what God is doing in our lives, as well as in the lives of others around us. See, that's the hardest one. We see that Timothy in the Brit Hadashah seemed to struggle with number four as well. And I think that's the one that most of us struggle with, is in keeping the faith. Staying excited about what God is going to do in our lives and in the lives of other people. You see, we see in multiple times in the Brit Hadashah 
where Paul encourages Timothy to keep going and to maintain the faith that God has given to him. We all need a Paul in our lives, don't we? A person who's solid in the faith, who knows and is realistic about the journey that we find ourselves in. We don't need someone who's constantly sugarcoating the issues in our life or pandering to us. We need that person who could say, hey, Chris, you're doing A. The Bible says do B. Stop doing A. Not saying, Chris, you know, you're doing A, but do you really think that's God's best for you? No, the Bible's very clear. Sometimes we need a Paul in our life who says, hey, suck it up, buttercup. Move forward. Come back to God. We need a person who can stand up and say the words that we see in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Paul says, I fought the good fight, Timothy. I finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is reserved for me a crown of righteousness with the Lord, the righteous judge. He will award me on that day, and not to only me, but also to everyone who has longed for his appearance. We all need a Paul, an Ebenezer stone, if you will, that is a stone of remembrance, that things are hard, things that are, are not always the best, but there is an ultimate goal that we're going toward, that we're striving toward, that Adonai is going to bless us as we keep going. It's a, per a person or a group of people who will stand alongside us and remind us that up until this point in our lives, God has been our support. So what makes you think he's going to stop? That's what Sam was declaring with the children of Israel. God has supported you to this point. Don't stop. Don't quit. Yes, sometimes life gets hard. It's okay. He's brought you this far. What makes you think he's not going to finish the work he started? Keep going. Continuing on into 1 Samuel, verse 13. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not invade the border of Israel anymore. And the hand of Adonai was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the towns that the Philistines had taken from Israel, from Ekron to Gath, were restored to Israel. And Israel recovered its territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. Now Samuel judged all the days of his life. He used to go annually on a circuit to Bethel, to Gilgal, and Mizpah, and would judge over Israel in these places. Then he'd return to Ramah, because that's where his home was. And from there he would judge Israel also. So we built an altar to Adonai there. So in order to help the children of Israel, who are on a good path now, they're repenting, they're seeking God, he would go around and to help to, them to grow in their spirituality, Samuel begins a ministry which involves a lot of travel and circuit teaching. I can only imagine how much of a tremendous, or tremendous and tiresome burden this must have been for him. The Reuben edition seems to share the same notion when it states that the sages teach that he accepted no honorarium, in other words, money, paid for work that he did from the people, not even for expenses, thus setting an unparalleled example of integrity. Samuel worked so hard that he grew old before his time, but in the end, he succeeded in reversing many generations of decline. So Samuel's hard work does pay off and is, in a, positive, and is, in a, is a positive effect on the people. However, as we continue into chapter 8, we begin to see a dark cloud starting to form on the horizon. Now, when Samuel grew old, 
And he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. We've heard something like this before, haven't we? Mm -hmm. Earlier in this, in this book. According to Tractate Ta'anit 5b in the Mishnah, Samuel was only 52 years old when he died. And at this point that we're talking about right now in his ministry, he's only 50 years old. The years of intense ministry had weighed heavily upon him. And as he sought replacements for himself, the natural selection was that his two sons would take his place. But due to their own poor choices, they were disqualified from taking up the mantle of their father. You know, now we're never told what causes Samuel's sons to become evil. But we do have an account of what caused Eli's, his predecessor's sons, to go astray. For the scripture did tell us that Eli failed to correct his sons. And we don't hear that about Samuel. Because I think there's a different issue that happens with Samuel. It's not that he doesn't correct his sons. Because remember, Eli was still hanging around with his sons. He was there in the tabernacle when all things went down. So while Eli had failed to discipline his sons, perhaps we can speculate that it's the sheer absence, absence of Samuel which led his sons to disgrace his re religious convictions. He's not there. He's circuit preaching. He's going all around talking to everybody. He's just not there. Samuel spent so much time away from home teaching others. Perhaps the neglect of his sons is what led to their disdain for the things of God. Now, Bible commenta commentator Sandy Adams said this regarding Samuel's sons. We can't assume that poor parenting results in the poor choices of a child. If we do that, then how do we handle the story of Adam and Eve? They were created by a perfect God, yet they chose to do imperfection and evil. Every child is a free moral agent. Ultimately, they get to choose what team they're playing for. Holiness is not hereditary. As a parent, these words ring true and cut deep at the same time, don't they? Because that means that we, can't, we can provide our child with the best of all starts, but ultimately it's up to them to make the right choices. Sometimes they don't, and that breaks our heart. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us, just like all the other nations. But the matter was displeasing in Samuel's eyes when they had said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to Adonai. In life, we all come face to face with having to make some tough decisions. And the correct way to handle these times is through prayer and seeking God's leading. Samuel serves as a great example here. He didn't fly off the top. He didn't lose his, his cool. He said, you know what? I'm super mad right now. I need to excuse myself because I got to go talk to God because you, you got me at my rope's end right now. As parents, 
Sometimes we have to excuse ourselves from our children because they're driving us crazy. It's never good to discipline in anger. Sometimes you need to step aside, and Samuel sets that example here. You see, because the people are not wrong in what they're asking for. For to ask for a king is one of the 613 mitzvot. It's a commandment to ask for a king. So then how do we apply that in our lives today? We have a king. We have a Messiah. He is our king. We still ask for his return quickly. But the reason that Samuel is angry is because they're asking for a king like the other nations. In the words of one rabbi, they should have been asking for a king that would inspire them. A king who would not only lead them, but who would set the example of unselfish and wholehearted service to God, not like the pagan nations. The Radak, that is Rabbi David Kimhi, would state it like this. The people erred in likening the proposed Israelite king to the neighboring monarchs. For a Jewish king must rule according to the Torah, not according to his whims or even the conscious judgments of what is right and what is wrong. That is why a king must write his own Torah scroll. He must engrave upon his consciousness that only the Torah is his ultimate law. In fact, it was the shortcomings of its king that brought about the decline and eventual exile of the nation. This is why Samuel was so displeased with their request and why God described it as a rejection of himself as king of Israel. You see, spending time with Adonai in his word is what brings us stability and understanding. That's why a king had to write his own Torah scroll. Because that's where we find the victory, is in God's word. Verse 7, then Adonai said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, rather they have rejected me from being king over them. They are doing to you exactly what they have been doing to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until today forsaking me and worshiping other gods. So do what they say, but give them a somber warning, telling them what kinds of rulings their king will make. You see, God has a perfect plan for us and a perfect will for us, and yet he still allows us to have the freedom to control the outcomes. So we must be careful what we ask for. Because for some reason, it seems that God's perfect plans can be forfeited for his okay plans if we ask enough. So God warns the people through Samuel that they are starting to move into the okay plans. So the question's raised. If he did, if he did that to them, what about us? So in other words, if he gave them warnings, what about us? And to answer that, I think it's safe to say that he's also going to provide warning signs for us today as we begin to stray away from his perfect plans into the realm of okay and tolerable plans. But only if we're paying attention. You know, a lot of times we'll say, God, why am I here right now? And I can't help but think that he looks at me and goes, I love you, Chris, but are you kidding me? I gave you 20 different options that told you to turn around and you chose to ignore them. But I'm still here. I still love you. You're in my okay plan, but not my perfect plan right now. Now Samuel reported all the words of Adonai to the people who were asking him for a king. This will be the practice of the king that will reign over you, he said. 
He will draft your sons and assign them to his charioteers and horsemen. And they will run before his chariots. He will appoint them as commanders of thousands and captains of fifties. Also some to plow his fields, reap his harvest, make his weapons of war and the equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will seize the best of your fields, vineyards, and olive groves, and give them to his courtiers. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and slaves. Wow, 10% tax. That sounds pretty good to me. (laughs) Considering that we're living right now, what is it, about 55, 60% tax rate right now? I take 10%. He's going to take the best of your young men. Oh, excuse me. He will also take your male and female servants, your best young men and your donkeys, and make them to do his work. He will also take a tenth of your flocks. Then you yourselves will become his slaves. When the day comes and you cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, Adonai will not answer you on that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel, and they said, No, a king should be over us. So we may become like all the other nations, having our king who will judge us, go out before us and fight our battles. We all know their king that they chose was Saul. And we'll learn about him next time. Not a good choice, but God gives them what they ask for. His okay way. Now after Samuel heard all the words of the people, He reported them back in the hearing of Adonai, and Adonai said to Samuel, listen to their voice, and appoint a king to reign for them. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go each one to your own town. See, Israel had come off such a great mountaintop revival experience. But now, so quickly, they found themselves in the valley of despair. Who would lead them now that their great prophet was preparing to die? Who would bring about such great victories in their lives? This is a common question. It's a question that we feel today in our lives. And this is the question that all mankind faces. Who will bring me the needed victory? Who will help me in time, in my time of need? As followers of Messiah Yeshua, We know that the ultimate victory is found in what he has done for us on the cross. Yeshua has taken the death penalty we so rightly deserve for violating God's commands and has stood in our place. And because of this, we now have victory over death and the sin that rules over our mortal bodies. This is the eternal path to victory that the world needs to know about. And who better than to tell them than us? Israel just got done. They had a mountaintop experience, but now they're feeling the drain of it all. But it doesn't have to be that way. We need to continue striving forward and keep going forward with the mission that God has called us to, to share the good news message with the world. Shabbat Shalom.